Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's Accent of Women, we look at the possibility of nuclear warfare on the Korean Peninsula. We hear from two South Korean activists, Sung Hee Choi and Wol San Liam. Wol San Liam is the Director of International and Korean Peninsular Affairs for the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union. That union is the largest affiliate of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, which is South Korea's militant labour federation. We'll be speaking with Walsan later in the program about the union movement's efforts against the war and towards North and South Korean reunification. But first up on the program, an excerpt from Sung Hee Choi's speech at the recent IPAN conference held in Melbourne, Australia in early September this year. IPAN is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network and Sung Hee Choi is a peace activist, particularly around protesting against the US military base on Jeju Island. Choi provides some political and historical context for the current escalating hostilities between the US and North Korea. Choi speaks here with a very strong Korean accent, so listeners, in the spirit of Accent of Women and its reason for existence, I ask for your keen listening to hear Choi's message. So how Korea was divided? It was just before the Japanese, uh, the, uh, the ending, the, the uh, imperialism, and then there were two US generals, they were given 30 minutes to divide the Korea, this artificial line, and then the only available map was the small map on the wall. So that's how Korea was divided in 30 minutes, and it is from the Bruce Cummings. But the Korean's dream in the video shown, the, the orange color says the people's will to build independent committee, a country, and as you see the Jeju Island, it's all orange, which means the Jeju was the, the hottest, uh, you know, the passionate uh, people, you know, are gathered. And then uh, because of that, Jeju got the punishment. There was a massacre because of unrising, and there were at least 30,000 people were killed. There, are, there is a famous word. And uh, my only interest is in oppression. That was the, the words from the general U.S. And then... Uh, that division went all during the Korean, uh, to the Korean War. Uh, you can just read, 4 million died, 10 million families are still separated, 70 million Koreans live in a state of war due to a need of the conflict. Uh, six years after the war ended with a temporary ceasefire agreement, we are still waiting for a peace treaty. Uh, One trillion is spent by, okay? And then, you know this guy, General Megado, I know, do not know why his statue is everywhere in Korea, Japan, and Philippines, but uh, he says that I would have dropped between 30 and 50 atomic bombs on uh, his air bases, which means the across the border between North Korea and China, so the making the sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea of Beltable Radioactive Cobalt. So that is the, the famous words by uh, General Douglas um, MacArthur. The Korean War uh, ended 
Napis Treaty by with the ceasefire July 27, 1953. And then as you can see, the ceasefire line is drawn uh, beside the 38th parallel. And then you see that the two kilometer demilitarized zone uh, in north and south, uh, you know, in the middle, uh, the bet uh, between the, the ceasefire line. And then additionally, there was no uh, ceasefire line on the sea. So that's the, the armistice agreement, and it is between North Korea and the United States. There is a Chinese general sign. It's not between South Korea and United States. The famous thing, the, please see the, the rest, the number 15, the top military commanders recommend to their governments that a political conference convene within 90 days after the trust signing. The armistice document says that the conference should settle through negotiation the questions of withdrawal of all foreign forces from Korea, the peaceful settlement of the Korean Peninsula, it was listed in the ceasefire, never happened because United States violated. So that's how South Korea is now. So we will see what happened after this violation of ceasefire. We would have the United States military stationing in South Korea. Instead, what happened was the United States, you know, the bio, uh, violating the ceasefire, they made a mutual defense treaty with South Korea just months later of the ceasefire, which became effective next year. So it is between South Korea and United States. And the important place, Article 4 says that the Republic of Korea grants and the United States of America accepts the right to dispose United States land, air, and sea forces in and about the territory of the Republic of Korea as determined by mutual agreement. And then Article 2 says that uh, the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of either of them, the political independence or security of either of them parties are threatened by external armed threat, yeah, the, they will help each other. And then by that mutual defense treaty, U.S. South Korean status of forces agreement is made in 1967. So that's how uh, strength the, the stationing of the South Korean forces, uh, the United States forces in uh, South Korea. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. We just heard from Sung Hee Choi, an anti-war activist based in South Korea and whose current work centres on opposing the US military base on Jeju Island. The South Korean labour movement has participated significantly in opposing war on the Korean Peninsula and has a long-standing position in favour of North and South Korean reunification. Walsan Liam is the Director of International and Korean Peninsula Affairs for the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union. That union is the largest affiliate of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, South Korea's militant labour federation. Well, a lot of people are watching international affairs, particularly the political posturing between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in relation to nuclear warfare. I suspect those in South Korea are particularly alarmed. How are you understanding these discussions? 
Yes, indeed, there has been quite uh, a lot of North Korea and the posturing between North Korea and the United States, Kim Jong-un and Trump um, in the news. And it's the the threat of uh, nuclear war is, is quite, it's higher than it's been in a long time on the Korean Peninsula. And so in fact, because Korea has been uh, under a truce, but in a state of war with a truce uh, over for the last 70 years. People in South Korea are generally quite numb to the, the tensions and the posturing that goes on back and forth, but things have moved to a different level recently for a couple of reasons, um, which means that there's a lot more tension and, and South Koreans are feeling a lot much more concerned than normal than usual about what's going on. And what's what's happened is, I think, two things in summary. One is that since 2010, in 2010, uh, North Korea changed its constitution to designate itself as a nuclear possessing state. And it's been driving very hard to develop nuclear weapons uh, for the last several years. And it's made a lot of technical gains recently. So it almost has, it's at the last stages of completing an intercontinental ballistic missile that is uh, loaded with a nuclear warhead that's small, small enough to carry and uh, with the capacity to re-enter the atmosphere that would hit the United States. And so that has made, obviously, the United States very nervous. And on top of that, the second thing I was going to mention is that we have Trump, who's very uh, bellicose and war, and Trump and his administration very um, warmongering. And so we have this real war of words and threats and even the threat of using a military force against North Korea, which is escalating tensions severely. I, the reason that North Korea has been developing nuclear weapons is because the United States actually has a policy of of uh, the potential to use a preemptive nuclear strike against it. And so it feels like it has to have nuclear weapons to, to defend itself. And it said, unless you change that policy and sign a peace treaty with us and normalize relations, we're going to develop nuclear weapons. So that's what it's doing. Um, so this is both a historical issue, but one that's really uh, hit at all time high in the last in the recent months, um, particularly under the Trump administration, administration and with this kind of really uh, exacerbation of the situation by, because of Trump's very uh, warlike response to it. The decision earlier in the year by the US military to build a new terminal high altitude area defence system, which we call the THAAD system in South Korea, it sparked major protests uh, from Korean anti-war activists. Uh, obviously, and you've spoken about this, activists are worried that the deployment of this new system will only serve to heighten tensions in the Korean peninsula and make a war with North Korea more likely. Firstly, where is the development of the THAAD system at? Actually, the US military and uh, South Korean military authorities agreed suddenly to the station, the deployment of this the THAAD uh, missile defense system in South Korea last year, in July last year. And uh, despite having an actual treaty that they should have to bring a new weapon system into South Korea, and despite not having done uh, an environmental impact assessment on the area where they're, they're planning to do the deployment, which is required by law. And despite not having a, 
having passed this through the National Assembly, the, both the military authorities on both sides had gone forward with the deployment. This was actually agreed to under the previous conservative Pakken administration that was then toppled by uh, people's uprising, a candlelight uprising. And uh, the first, so the agreement had been made last July. There was been protests every night in the area uh, where the deployment is was scheduled to be taking to take place, which is the Songju Kimcheon area, um, and a small village inside the Songju County called Sosongli. Um, there have been candlelight vigils in those in those three areas every night since the first announcement of of this agreement. Uh, the first deployment of actual SAD launchers took place on April 26th, which was after the, the previous president stepped down, but before the new, much more liberal, supposedly left-leaning president came into power. And so uh, we were hoping very much that this new president would listen to the calls of the people in that area and the people in South Korea who want peace on the peninsula and stop the deployment and go through all of the procedures that I mentioned earlier, at least to have some legitimacy behind the agreement. And unfortunately, uh, he's done exactly what happened um, before he took power, which was to rush the deployment, uh, a second deployment of four more launchers on uh, in the morning of September 7th. And so uh, you're right that this has sparked a, a movement or a lot of energy from peace activists around the country who have been protesting both in Seoul, but also going down to the Sangju Sosongmi area and protesting together with the residents in that area. And the last uh, move was in the night of September 6th and into the morning of the 7th, we gathered in that village to try to literally like physically block the deployment. Uh, but there were about 600, 500 of us and uh, 8,000 police that were mobilized. And so unfortunately, we held off for several hours uh, with blocking the streets with our bodies. And um, But eventually the police were able to push the um, protesters aside and the military trucks drove in with uh, the launchers. So there are now six launchers, which makes one THAAD unit that are deployed in the area. But it the construction to create the base, um, they're, they're actually operational, but they're not stationary. And so I mean, they're not firmly um, planted in the ground there. And so we're, we're continuing to protest to call for an end to, to stop the construction, to stop their operation and to remove them from the village. Um, unfortunately, as you said, the, the uh, deployment of these, the THAAD system both increases um, tensions with North Korea and also increases tensions with China because the radar that's part of that system, in fact, it's much more effective in uh, monitoring the Chinese missile sites in Chinese airspace than it is actually for shooting down North Korean missiles. There's a, there's a lot of information out there that demonstrates that this system is not really effective at all in shooting down uh, missiles coming from North Korea that might be targeting South Korea. And it's also not effective in shooting down intercontinental ballistic missiles, but it is, it, the radar is effective for monitoring China and Chinese missile systems. And so it's really part of the United States uh, effort to increase its military capacity in the region vis-a-vis -vis China, as China also develops its military capacity. And it's part of the uh, the regional and global uh, United States' missile defense system, which is really about defending, uh, after, defending against 
for example, missiles coming from China after an initial attack to be able to reattack. So it's really hard to say that it's a defensive system. It's part of a larger weapon system and, and an increase of military force in the region. As both, um, as you mentioned, the the development of the THAAD system has re-energised and reactivated the anti-war movement in South Korea. I'm curious about the character of that anti-war slash peace movement. Is the labour movement, the organised labour movement, very much inside the anti-war peace movement? We try to be. Um, there in South Korea, the issue of anti-war peace is has a particular character because, uh, as you will know, the country is was divided at the start of the Cold War between North and South, and so it's a divided country, uh, which is highly militarized, as I mentioned before, still at war, although there's been a treaty, so there was never a, a, a peace treaty to formally end the Korean War that happened from 1950 to 1953, uh, which means that war could break out at any time, and so usually when we talk about peace, anti-war, we also talk about seeking unification of the country, um, as well as uh, the removal, removal of U.S. troops that are stationed in, in South Korea and the removal of U.S. military bases. And again, of course, the, uh, the abolition of the United States' uh, aggressive preemptive strike policy towards North Korea. And so there's always been a movement for peace and unification in South Korea, and it's the policy of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions and the Democratic Labor Movement to work together with that movement for unification and uh, to achieve a real lasting peace regime on the peninsula. And so we have uh, committees that are in charge of this work. For example, the my union, the KPTU, has an anti-war peace and unification committee, and we've been mobilizing people, for example, to go to Songju, Sozongli, to participate in the anti-THAD protests, as well as doing education among our members and uh, going out to protests in the Seoul area as well to try to, as much as possible, um, be, as you said, I don't know if we're right in the center, but but to be as much as, as possible part of the anti-war and peace movement and unification movement. Well, the labour movement of South Korea certainly does have a long history of calling for the reunification of North and South Korea. In 2005, there was the landmark soccer game held between workers on both sides of the border, and again in 2015. But I actually don't know much about the 2015 um, soccer game. Can you tell us what uh, this particular activity is about and what its objective is in relation to reunification? Our goal with soccer games and other types of exchange between people in North and South Korea is it's about exactly that, having people-to-people exchange or worker-to-worker exchange. Uh, as most people will, will guess, it's very hard to have any sort of exchange between North and South Korea, particularly on a civilian level, because it's controlled tightly by both sides. And so... Uh, from South Korea to travel to North Korea, you have to get permission from the government. From North Korea, you literally can't travel to South Korea. And anything, unfortunately, anything that we do with workers in North Korea has to be passed by the governments on both sides and is controlled by the government in, in North Korea. But for us, even though it's limited and even though our contact with workers in North Korea is limited, we still feel it's important 
to demonstrate that, to, to get to know each other, at least to some extent, and to demonstrate that people on both sides want peaceful unification. And so one of the ways that is easy to do that and to get approval for is by doing a worker-to-worker -worker soccer match. And there, so the two national centers in South Korea uh, um, are form two different teams. And then there is there is a uh, uh, an employment or a workers association, which is a branch of the government, but it is a workers association in North Korea uh, that we work with. And we end up having two games, one between the FKTU, which is the other national center and the organization in North Korea, and one between the KCTU and uh, the workers in North Korea, and usually the North Koreans win because they're much younger than us. <laughs> but, um, but that's, I mean, that's essentially what happened. So in 2000, it's happened three or four times, um, actually. 2002, I think, was the first one. The last one was in 2015, and workers from South Korea went up to North Korea and had a soccer match, had the soccer match. And so it was sort of the last it was surprising because it happened under a conservative government in South Korea, and it was the last type of exchange on this level that we've had with North Korean workers. Uh, but hopefully we will be able to work through the military and political tensions that are up at the moment to get to being able to do that in the future. I think that um, my own personal opinion is that, you know, those exchanges are they're good, but they don't they don't get at the heart of the problem. Right. It, which is. Uh, to deal with the real political and military tensions between uh, United States and North Korea, North the United States aggressive policy towards North Korea, the South Korea's uh, dependent military alliance with uh, with the United States. Those are the real tough issues, and until those are solved, you know, we may have gains, but uh, they may not. You know, they're not going to take us all that far, actually. So I guess my my closing question for you is what is the way forward? What do you think it's actually going to take? What level of organisation, what strategies, what tactics will it take to actually avoid war, fight for peace in the current political climate? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, you know, just yesterday or right now, there are leaders around the world who are gathered at the United Nations to sign this new treaty that bans nuclear weapons. And of course, it's the nuclear possessing countries beginning with the United States and then the, the ones, the unofficial ones like North Korea, as well as South Korea, which doesn't have its own nuclear weapons, but uh, is under the United States' nuclear umbrella, which are refusing to sign the treaty, which is really too bad. And I think ultimately, you know, we need a, a global movement to put pressure on uh, nuclear powers being with the United States to put down its nuclear weapons. But short of that, um, because that's a little bit beyond where we are in the Korean Peninsula right now, we need, you know, we really need to de-escalate things very quickly because it's gotten to a very uh, dangerous point on on uh, the Korean Peninsula. And so our, we are calling for an end to all uh, military acts and acts of aggression on all sides and immediate dialogue towards a peace and eventual peace treaty and denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And uh, we need to work together with people and pe uh, forces in starting with the United States, I think, because they have the most capacity to put pressure on their government to, um, to stop uh, the military threats against North Korea. 
Um, but we also need to work, I think, together with other uh, peace and labor and anti-war movements in the in the Asia Pacific region because this is the region that's going to be uh, brought into, you know, is that's under the most threat if some uh, war does break out on the Korean Peninsula in South Korea. We need to mobilize much more. Unfortunately, there's a big part of the population that is caught up in this uh, this uh, military that sort of is yeah, caught up in the sway of this military competition between the United States and South Korea on one hand and North Korea on the other hand. And so uh, is supporting things like the restationing of, the, of American uh, tactical missile uh, nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula, which of course would just increase tensions even more, is supporting things like the deployment of that. And so we need to do a lot of outreach to the public here to try to get some level of understanding that more and more military buildup just makes things worse. And we really, we have to be somewhere, there has to be uh, some, somebody putting their foot down that says, look, we have to, we have to stop this vicious cycle and sit down and talk. And there's a, there's a desire of people in South Korea, um, anti-war peace and unification people that that dialogue would start with South Korea and North Korea, given that it is the Korean peninsula and these are the two parties on the Korean peninsula. Unfortunately, North Korea is much more focused on on the United States and getting united because it's the United States that has the military power that's pressuring it and it has the power over sanctions that's pressuring it. And so it's the North Korean government is really looking towards uh, the United States and wanting to get a rise out of it and get it to the bargaining table. But, um, you know, so we need a stronger movement in South Korea calling on on uh, the the South Korean government to break away from its alliance with, with the United States and reach out with a really strong deal to North Korea. We need people in the United States also uh, putting pressure on their government. We need people in the region supporting these efforts. I think what is is at least positive is there is a way to end this this problem, and that is for all parties to sit down and for the and so that would be the United States, South Korea, North Korea, and possibly China, and stop military actions, sit down, have dialogue for the United States to really repeal its aggressive policy towards North Korea, for the North Korea to agree to on steps towards denuclearization, um, and for all the parties to sign a peace treaty. I mean, that's that's what needs to happen. So it's just a matter of us be, building a strong enough movement, calling for that. That was Walsan Liam, the Director of International and Korean Peninsula Affairs for the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union. And before her, peace activist Sung Hee Choi. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. Go to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to this week's show. 
Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna, and I look forward to your company again next week.